welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. New York Red Bulls began life in 1994 as the New York, New Jersey Metro Stars and played in Major League Soccer's first season in 1996. But the history of MLS began six years earlier, in 1988, when the United States Soccer Federation pledged to create a Division I professional soccer league as a condition to FIFA awarding the 94 FIFA World Cup to the United States. The first season in 1996 was played with just 10 teams. In the early years came with plenty of challenges, including financial attendances, and the teams often had to play out of stadiums built for other sports, such as American football. There was also some sentiment that soccer was a foreign game and there were moves made around changing the rules to help Americanize the game. Fast forward to 2023 and MLS has rebounded with increased attendance and the development of soccer-specific stadiums. Boasting an average attendance of over 20,000 people per game, MLS has the third highest average attendance of any sports league in the US after the NFL and MLB. And it's the seventh highest attended professional soccer league worldwide. MLS currently has 28 teams, which makes it the largest first division professional soccer league in the world. Hi, I'm Daniel Oyston, host of Inside Sponsorship, and you're listening to episode 120, brought to you by Core Software. And it is great to have you listening to another show, no matter where you are in the world or what your connection is with the sponsorship industry. And good news, probably on the back of my complaining, I have a shout out. Narendra Patenka from Zenetic Sports in India got in contact on LinkedIn to say hi and to let me know that he works on creating and executing end-to-end sports business solutions for sports teams, athletes and associations and that they also run a sports talent identification and acquisition program for school students in India. Great to hear from you Narendra and thanks for listening. There is no doubt MLS is a powerful and attractive league, and that's why it wasn't all that surprising that in 2006 it was announced that Austrian energy drink conglomerate Red Bull was purchasing a club. Of course, as part of the sponsorship that came with ownership, the team was completely rebranded, changing the name to New York Red Bulls, which included new colours and a new logo. An energy drink company, it's not a conventional owner of a sports franchise. However, slowly but surely... Red Bull have made inroads into an array of sports over the years. In fact, Red Bull's rise in sport, it's been pretty astronomical and they now have an invested interest in over 15 sports teams across 11 sports. And clearly there's a major focus on football slash soccer and also motorsports, but also ice hockey, sailing, skateboarding and surfing. And to take us into one of those teams, New York Red Bulls, is Jordan Iannuzzi, Senior Manager, Corporate Partnerships. Jordan began his career at the lacrosse loggers who play in the collegiate summer baseball league before he spent some time in Australia working for MLB International, who at the time owned the Australian Baseball League. Jordan returned to the US, spent a little bit of time at Time Out magazine before moving to the Brooklyn Nets and then up into BSE Global, the parent company of Barclays Centre, the Brooklyn Nets and its NBA G League team, the Long Island Nets. Now, as Senior Manager Corporate Partnerships at New York Red Bulls, Jordan is able to offer not just a great property in New York, but also access to a truly powerful global network to brands. Here's Jordan. Jordan, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you on the show because I've listened to you on some other shows and it's been quite enjoyable uh, listening to you speak. Very informative. On this show, though, we always start with a few icebreaker questions just to 
warm you up, have a little bit of fun, help the listeners get to know you a little bit. And this one's one of my favourites. It's a bit of a go-to one, and that is, what was your first ever job? So my first ever job, uh, I worked in food demonstrations in a supermarket. So if you're not familiar, it's it's those handing out samples, let's say, on, on aisle four. Um, you know, my, my job was to get consumers to try and, you know, try those said food samples and hopefully convert to purchase. Uh, but it was a great opportunity to meet and talk with people. My my father, actually, he worked in the food industry for over 35 years. Uh, so naturally, you know, I was exposed to a lot of unique roles and, and, and gained some really invaluable experience from, from him and as one of my idols. Um, and, and he always, and, and still is, is a, is a people person. So networking came easy and, and I was just there to, best emulate and, and try to replicate what he was doing. Um, but this job naturally got me out of my comfort zone uh, very early. What sort of food are we talking about? Little bits of cheese and sausage, things like that? You name it. I mean, there's 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 chips, There's there could be sausage. Um, I never had to cook anything. So it was it was typically uh, something that, let's say, you know, a teenager or younger can, can handle. Um, but <laughs> there's was, there was no necessary restrictions. Very good. Now, as we heard in the introduction, you've spent some time working in Australia, where I live. So I want to do a little bit of a quick fire around some things that are unique or or, or somewhat unique to Australia, just to see how you stack up. Let's go. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. What is a food that you miss from Australia? Meat pie. Describe what Vegemite is and what it tastes like. It's a brown-like paste tastes like soy sauce but it's it's definitely not nutella i can tell you that <laughs> do you like beetroot on your hamburgers sure more more toppings the merrier is it okay to call mcdonald's maccas absolutely did you ever get swooped by a magpie yes more actually more than once uh which which likely puts me in the majority of australians <laughs> do you know what chucking a yui means easy as that's a, that's a u-turn very good and what was one of your favorite sporting memories from your time in australia I'll probably be a little biased because I was somewhat involved, but the 2014 MLB opening series uh, between the the Dodgers and the Diamondbacks uh, at the Sydney Cricket Ground, um, I believe it was the first time, if I remember correctly, it was the first time in 100 years that an MLB game was played on Australian soil uh, and one that, you know, at the SCG. So for me, that was was the culmination of, of a lot of things that I loved. Outstanding. Now, Jordan, you've had a pretty varied career in sports, and I touched on it lightly in the introduction, but it would be great if you could talk us through it, and I would love for you to maybe just cover one thing that you learned or or an area of, of your skills that you really grew in each of those roles. I started my career uh, with the lacrosse loggers in the North Woods League uh, in the Midwest, uh, Wisconsin. Um, my role there was in commercial sales, sponsorship, and activation, but it was really a jack-of-all-trades position. So it included on-field promotions, you know, box office, ticket ops, finance. Um, it's it's even filling in for the mascot on a Saturday when, you know, Louis the logger is sick. Um, you know, you don't hesitate, you raise your hand. But early on, I, I learned you don't necessarily need to know exactly what you love or what you want to do long-term, but rather it's it's beneficial to understand what you aren't interested in and, and have that process necessarily eliminate the areas of business that you aren't passionate about. So for me, it was it was removing box office, removing ticket ops, finance, on-field promotions, um, 
you know, to some extent it's a process of elimination, but I started to grow my passion for, for sponsorship and corporate sales, um, you know, through that process. Thereafter, I joined MLB International and the Australian Baseball League. So my roles there were sponsorship at the league office. And then I was the assistant general manager for, for one of the clubs uh, based in Melbourne. You know, I, for, for that role, you know, I've always been an advocate for, for challenging yourself. And you know, as, as probably you can attest to selling baseball to Australians, you know, as glamorous as one may think, and it's involved with with MLB's backing at the time, you know, it was a challenge. It was a challenge being a tier three, four sport. Um, it's not impossible, um, but it was still a challenge. And I think the fact that success didn't come easy really made me realize you've, you've got to work hard. Um, and I, I definitely took that with me, you know, every every step of the way thereafter. After that, I worked uh, at a short stint with Time Out Magazine. Um, so I worked uh, helping lead their event sponsorship and digital ad sales. It's simple for me. I, you know, I learned something completely new, which was digital advertising and, and CPMs. Um, so weaving that into what I knew as sponsorship and live events, and then turning that into what is a 360-degree marketing campaign. So instead of just isolating yourself into live events, digital or print, can actually start talking to to clients and prospects about multiple uh, areas of the business and put that together in a, in a proper package. So really packaging things together. After that, I worked with, uh, uh, linked up with BSC Global. So the holding company for the Brooklyn Nets and Barclays Center. So I've been there for the large part of six years as the director of premium partnerships. Um, in that role specifically, I really, really had to dive into positioning yourself in a competitive marketplace. And, you know, as glamour, I'll go back to it, as glamorous as it may seem to work in the NBA or even a world-class venue like Barclays Center, it again, never came easy. Um, you know, there were, there were plenty of challenges. Um, there always are, um, but you work to find your niche, both in terms of expanding your network, you know, meeting new clients, prospects, positioning yourself properly. Um, positioning your, your property properly. And uh, because of this, you know, you, you have to, you have to find where you sit in the market because otherwise you're going to fail before you begin. So just knowing where to position yourself. Uh, and then most recently where I am now, I'm with the New York Red Bulls, which sits under Red Bulls international umbrella of sports properties and corporate projects. I'm the senior manager of corporate partnerships. I've been here a little over 18 months now. Um, for this role, what I've found is the notion of networking and the art of relationship building, um, both internal and external. Partnerships don't start and stop within the partnership department. So what I mean by that is we're constantly collaborating with, with Marcoms, digital, social, you know, community, youth programs, ticketing, strategy and analytics, uh, as well as my, our colleagues at Red Bull North America with the CAN. Red Bull Media House, Red Bull Soccer International, and Oracle Red Bull Racing and, and it is part of the larger corporate projects. Um, so I think in each facet of my career, it's it's been something new, but I've always been able to take what I've learned and add it to the next opportunity and help build up, you know, what is my, uh, you know, my experience and my value prop. Jordan, as you mentioned, you've worked in two very 
different markets, North America and Australia, apart from what sort of sports are the most popular and what holds people's attention, how would you contrast the two markets? What makes them what makes them different? There's a couple assets that that really jump out. The first would be, you know, ownership and governing bodies. So in the US, as you know, like the majority of sports teams are privately owned. Franchises can be bought, they can be sold just like any other business. You know, in Australia where there could still definitely be private ownership. Most of the teams are owned by the leagues, by member clubs, thus making those ownership changes a little less common. Um, it also it also really opens up what is the differentiator, where it's fairly common practice for, let's say, you know, an ownership group in the U.S. to not only you know own the professional team, but also the stadium, the arena they play in, and and really, whereas that's significantly rarer in Australia. Um, that's something again. My, my experience at Barclays Center and, and with the Red Bulls, it's it's almost common practice. The second piece I'd bring up would be salary caps and player drafts. So again, in both countries, there are salary caps to ensure competitive balance. That's that's pretty evident. But the rules and and the caps and and the drafts do vary a little bit. So whereas the U.S. has, I think, a little bit more of a stricter salary cap. Um, player drafts in most leagues, it's it's just not the same. Whereas in Australia, it's a little bit more flexible. So the, you know, the variance between flexibility and, and being strict. And the last piece, a little bit more obvious, but it's, it's college sports. So in the US, we have college sports that are significantly part of the sports landscape. Um, you know, many of the athletes aspiring to play in college level before even turning pro. So that only further amplifies with, with NIL, right, and coming into play and, and players being able to monetize their name, image, and likeness through marketing and, and, and promotional awareness. In Australia, those college sports just aren't as prominent, right? So with most young athletes just aiming to play in the professional league as soon as possible. That's it's a, just a different pathway that we have in the States versus Australia. Very good. Yes, some interesting contrast there. Now, as you mentioned earlier, and as we said in the intro, you now work at the New York Red Bulls. Jordan, give us a rundown on your sponsorship portfolio. What does it look like at the moment? High level, we have about 35 partners, and that covers everything from you know automotive, banking, financial, healthcare, apparel, ticketing, education, beverages, which are alcoholic and non-alcoholic, um, you know, hotel, it, it runs the gamut. Um, you know, that's that's just kind of a, a high level. Now, often I want to ask what a typical day looks like. It really feels like I can go into an organization when I say, what does a typical day look like or or what, what does a, a typical week look like? And, and like I said, it, it, it's often a, a typical question I like to ask because it kind of helps to see the organization through your eyes a little bit about how you see yourself working during a day or during a week. But I've been doing this for a long time now, and I, I know that no one day or, or even a week is typical, so it's always hard to get a good answer out of people. So I'm changing tack a little bit. In, so instead, I wanted to ask about game days. What does a typical home game day look like for you? Does it start with a can of Red Bull at home when you first wake up to get going? Well, you know what they say, it's Red Bull gives you wings. So we have an activation team that's there almost all day pre-match tirelessly helping set up some of the interior and exterior act- activations at Red Bull Arena. In some cases, this even warrants you know, partner support. So the activation team is really, they're running the show, getting up, uh, hands down. With staff arriving early, it's always a good 
it's always a good idea to do a walkthrough and double check everything looks and, and, and feels right, especially especially those that having, you know, call it partner uh, implications. And then from there, like, you know, I'm giving our suites and premium spaces a once over. So when we're hosting clients, we, you know, we want to ensure their experiences are flawless and within our control, of course. So that includes double checking the suites look clean and tidy and, you know, any requested gifting is present, TVs work. Um, you just, you want to, you want to cover all your, your, you know, your balances. Um, I'll also be in direct contact with, with any prospects in attendance that are coming out. So call it resharing the, the run a show, which includes when and where to meet outside of the arena, escorting in timing for pregame tours, you know, path of travel for, for future familiarity, uh, helping, helping get them settled. Um, you know, course if there's troubleshooting along the way like i'm i'm fully on call so clients are encouraged to call text you know whatever they need to do to get a hold of me uh with with any questions uh we ultimately want to optimize their experience right so as much as we can do uh this leads into our, our partnership and customer first approach and that again starts well before the match and then lastly i would probably just add with the vip entrance doors opening up 90 minutes prior to start general doors for us open 60 minutes my time is is typically made up of the aforementioned right when hosting but we we have a great team if anyone needs specific assistance in any certain area or task it's it's not even a question right we're always always leaning on each other um it's a team first mentality so it's just about making the ask over communicating what can i do to help does anybody need anything John, you mentioned there about having any prospects that are attending the game and making contact with them. Is that all about just trying to get prospective sponsors just a little bit of a taste test of, of what it's like being engaged with the team? Absolutely. We want them to feel that there's a relationship before we're, we're, we're talking business. So hosting them, having them you know, conceptualize what the relationship is like and what the partnership is like. And that starts with customer service. That starts with, you know, escorting and and tours and and, and you know experiential access. You seeing our, our our field level, seeing our activations, giving them the full experience when they're hosting clients. Right at the end of the day, they're going to be utilizing suites and premium spaces to for business development or employee engagement. We want them to just feel like they are in the driver's seat and they can they can envision this partnership again before we're actually even talking business. A little over six years ago, I welcomed Steve Powell, who at the time was working at the Houston Dynamos. He came on the show and had a little bit of a chat, just like you are now. Steve, he'd been involved in soccer in the US for over 14 years, and he'd been at the Dynamos for about 10 years at the time. And I asked Steve how the landscape had changed in that time and how it compared to other markets and also what types of assets or inventory he had seen really develop or, or just be introduced over his time involved in football in America. Uh, here's what Steve had to say. Major League Soccer does a very, very good job. In fact, I came back from meetings in Los Angeles in terms of sharing those best practices, sharing some, some different activations that other teams have done so we can all learn. It's such a massive country, much like Australia. It makes it a little bit more challenging to get in front of people. I've got friends that work on the commercial side in England. You, you drive an hour and you're six clubs. 
Here, you, you're driving five hours to get to Dallas, the closest club we have, or 12 hours to Kansas City. So I think the league does a pretty good job on that. I think a lot of us, my colleagues at other clubs, there's only really two markets that they compete with each other. Daniel, New York, uh, currently has two teams, one in Jersey, one in New York. Los Angeles will have two. So they kind of compete with each other. So they're a bit more particular about sharing too much information. The rest of us are, are, are keen to share what's working, what isn't working, how do we make those changes on a pretty regular basis, which I think has tended to pay dividends. The, the audience, the sport has changed so dramatically in the US, it's, it astounds me. I mean, I first started working in this industry in 1993. It was, you know, USACA mums and dads, you thought, you know, the parents, the kids, that's all we really had. There was a few people that had maybe been exposed to the game when they were based somewhere else, or there was a few certain commit. There wasn't lots of diversity or an international influence in Wichita, believe me. Other markets I lived in more so, like Florida. But now when you look at a city like Houston, where 53% of our audience is Hispanic, which pretty much mirrors what this, the community looks like, it's an oil and gas center for the U.S., so there's Scots, there's English, there's Australians, there's Nigerians, there's Norwegians. They all come with the same passion for this game. So it's, a, it's an incredible experience to go to our games and hear all the different accents and, and to spend time talking to different people and find out what brought them here. Not always oil and gas, but sometimes other industries. And building the new stadium also changed as well. You know, we weren't able to go out and, and attract as much corporate support when we played in a old American football stadium was built in 1932 and literally was crumbling. I mean, literally crumbling. Once we built the new, the new stadium, you know, we were, we were filled in a lot more interest from corporations. So now, you know, I, 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 I never have people meet me in our offices because we don't actually office at the stadium. I have them meet at the stadium. I give them a VIP tour. I call it my Disneyland tour. So I can kind of share with them Imagine what, you know, what your brand would look like in this building. Let's talk about how you entertain your clients in here. So it's changed remarkably. It really has. And, and I just think it's, it's only going to get stronger. I think all the other leagues realize that Major League Soccer is, is trending in a very positive place. You know, we're in a market that we've got a Major League Baseball team, uh, an NBA team, and an NFL team. So we're in one of those super hyper-competitive marketplaces it's a big city with a lot of economic strength, but the, 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 the bucket's only so big, Daniel, um, for sports marketing. So that's why we just need to be that wee bit more aggressive, wee bit more creative, maybe offering more of those bespoke opportunities than others to win that business. And Jordan, that clip was from early in 2017. It's now early 2023, and it seems a lifetime ago with all that has happened since then. As such, I thought it'd be really interesting to get your take on comparing what Steve outlined and what the market looks like now, including any of those questions and comments around assets and in inventory. What are your thoughts after listening to what Steve had to say there? There's still constant communication with with other clubs so we have a pretty steady cadence of mls league-wide calls that includes commercial leadership from from each team in some cases it may be sharing best practices in others it may be a little bit more of a league-wide initiatives updates from the league um, and an open forum for teams really to provide feedback and or input but as it relates i guess to the the competitive landscape 
again, we have California and Texas have have three clubs each. Florida and Ohio have two. And then we split with New York, New New Jersey with NYCFC. But overall, you know, if you think about it, outside of us and then the LAFC and LA Galaxy, there's not a lot of in-market competition within a close proximity, at least. So our biggest competition then moves to the other big four sports in town. Um, that's two MLB teams, two NBA teams, two NFL teams, and three NHL teams, in addition to the five world-class sport venues that are hosting teams and programming, you know, ancillary events year-round. You know, SBJ just ran an article referencing, I think it was 20, I think it was 28 pro teams and permanent events in New York alone. Uh, that's in addition to 16 NCAA D1 schools. So that right there, that is the New York, New Jersey market summed up. And that's what we're continually having to navigate and position ourselves within. Um, but Steve, Steve's absolutely right. The, the league has, has really only continued to trend upwards, especially since 2017. Um, that includes diversification and further appealing to what is a more multicultural audience. So just some quick hits if we're, if we're looking at you know the then and now. We've got 29 clubs, so that's 10 new clubs since 2013. We've got an average club value somewhere around, call it like 550 million, which is five times that since 2013. Total club value is around 16 billion, which is eight times that since 2013. We've got about $7 billion invested in state-of-the-art soccer stadiums, which again, puts the fan experience at the forefront. Uh, and then we've got about a billion dollars in training complexes that are being built for, for the team. So, you know, that includes us, right? The New York Red Bulls, we're, we're in the process of, of building our own new state-of-the-art training complex, 80 acres, and that'll be up and running the 24-25 leading up to the uh, 26 FIFA World Cup. But if you take that and then you add in what is the average M MLS fan, right? It's, it's 39 years old, give or take. Um, the other big four sports are, are in their 40s. And then we have about... 58% or so of MLS fans that are that are really Gen Z and or millennials. So again, you compare that to what is, say, the MLB or, or NFL, that it's closer to 38, 39%. So it's you can just imagine, right? A lot of our marketing, this is league-wide, is directed to that audience. And it's not just the Rebels again. So it's it's league-wide. So we have a, we share a similar demo. I think Steve's Steve's right, and a lot of things um have changed, but a lot of things also remain intact. Very, very interesting. I'm glad I asked that question. I'm glad I went and dug out that clip and, and played it for you because I found that very interesting, some of those, particularly some of the numbers. And as you said, just continuing to trend up. I know I'm not quite on the other side of the world, but so far away, whenever I see photos or footage from the MLS, the stadiums just look absolutely packed these days, which is just really pleasing to see. Jordan, we know that sponsorship prospecting it's a lot around making sure there is a good fit in terms of what the brand you're potentially speaking to is trying to achieve and what the rights holder has in terms of the ability to help achieve it. What is it that Red Bull offers that makes it a good fit for certain brands? What is the value proposition? And is it really unique to other tier one sporting properties in America? We absolutely have one of the more unique value props 
amongst other clubs across the, the, the states. Because we are a corporate project, we sit under the wider world of Red Bull, it's imperative for us not only to find partners that provide what is a commercial investment, but but they need to align with our partners that can, let's say, enhance the fan experience, provide value to the wider community, give our sporting team an advantage on the pitch, and or call it like positively impact Red Bull that can in some way, shape or form. That's that's imperative. So while we aren't asking partners to tick every box, it's really important to find partners that can add value to at least one of those or more of those pillars. And that'll help tell a greater story for Red Bull. In addition to that, again, we're, we're sitting within the wider world of Red Bull umbrella. So we have that opportunity to scale our partnerships. And what I mean by that is instead of just being a MLS club focused on local or regional partnerships, we can we can ask the right questions. And if needed, we can scale nationally with Red Bull Media House. We can scale globally with Red Bull Soccer International, which is our club's overseas Red Bull Leipzig in the Bundesliga and Red Bull Bragantino uh, in Serie A, Brazil. Uh, and that also includes Oracle Red Bull Racing within F1. So if a if a partner is interested in other markets outside of New York, New Jersey, or just let's just say soccer is not part of their brand strategy, we have the ability to pivot and collaborate really within the the wider world of Red Bull. Football in Europe, especially in England, it isn't very well known for the activities that happen in and around a stadium before a game. In fact. It can be quite dull, actually. I remember taking my son up to Birmingham uh, for a game and we grabbed our tickets and we were just standing around outside the stadium. I think it was a cold Tuesday night. It's nothing happening, nothing to engage fans, nothing to engage families before the game. Of course, we know that America, particularly in some sports, has a tradition of tailgate parties that they look absolutely amazing and wild. And it's probably on my bucket list to be a part of a tailgate party. Are you doing much there around pregame sponsor activation and engaging fans? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a key driver for us. You know, so what we have, uh, we call it the boulevard. So it's essentially, it's an exterior activation zone just outside Red Bull Arena. We set up about three hours prior to kickoff until 30 minutes before kick. You figure there's about 80% of our fans, you know, hover around that number that attend the match, that visit the boulevard, that walk through it in order to enter the arena. Um, and there's various activation footprints throughout, and that's for all ages. Um, so it's it's a great opportunity for brands and partners to, let's just say, send, send ambassadors to be on site. They're able to engage and interact with fans and provide product information. They can leverage data collection. Uh, but it's it's a fantastic opportunity. And we absolutely, um, you know, utilize that as a driver for our partnerships. So is that actually a boulevard that, that essentially you force, for want of a better word, force people to walk through as part of their their sort of in and around the stadium experience to attend the stadium? So pre-COVID, prior to, my, uh, to me being there, it, it had been down one of the streets and we had partners set up through and through as fans would go into the arena. Um, where we've come out of COVID and more recently, we have it a little bit closer to the arena. So it's almost just outside um, on the concourse um, before you enter the arena. So before you're going to any of the gates, unless you're coming from one of the back entrances, you know, call it that again, that 20%, uh, majority will, will walk through it. And there's, you know, there's mini pitches, there's areas for, for kids to kick soccer. We've got 
our freestyle crew. Um, there's there's just a lot going on. So I've heard you talk about the fact that you're in sales and so you always have to be hunting. I've worked in sales as well many moons ago and I know I found that aspect quite exhausting, always just having to be on, always having to be hunting for the next opportunity. How do you approach the always hunting mentality without it becoming too much of a grind and overwhelming for you? I start by focusing on building relationships. So building relationships, let's say, with, with potential customers that leads to a more natural, sustainable selling process. Again, instead of constantly pushing for a sale, you take the time, you get to know your clients, understand their needs and goals, and then ultimately provide value. We also look at myself would be setting realistic goals. So I, I like to set goals that are both achievable and motivating, breaking down goals into smaller, more manageable tasks that can be focused on really daily and or weekly, right? Without being overwhelmed over something that's that's long-term. Um, tracking, tracking your progress, let's say keeping track of your sales and marketing metrics, this helps you see what's works, what's not working, what you need to improve. And it help, you're able to adjust your strategy as needed and stay motivated through and through. Uh, and the last piece, you know, call it prioritizing self-care. So making sure you take care of yourself physically and mentally, uh, we probably take that for granted, but taking breaks, exercising regularly, like finding ways to just, just relax and unwind. Um, I've got the kiddos here, so I've got plenty of time with that, you know, post work that, that it, you know, takes me away, but this helps me stay energized. It helps me stay focused on the goals without feeling overwhelmed. Um, because ultimately there's, there's always work to be done, right? At the end of the day, there's always something that can be done to, to try to get ahead. But we, the hardest thing to do is you got to know when to turn off and recharge the batteries. So I, I kind of summarize it in that, yes, I'm always hunting, but hunting is about being proactive and consistent in your process. This, this really shouldn't be at the expense of, of your well-being or relationship with clients. You've just got to have that, that balance. So talking about goals and targets there, are you somebody who sort of sets the bigger goals and, and then takes them to the boss and says, this is where I think we should be going. This is what I think is achievable. You lead that conversation or do you sort of wait for the boss to come and say, look, these are the goals and the targets for the business. And then you take them and break them down into your own smaller goals and targets. There's probably two ways I would, I would take that one First and foremost, it's a really collaborative process uh, with with the Red Bulls here. So, you know, in terms of our leadership team, what those goals are from a commercial perspective for our marketing partnerships department, um, yeah, it's 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 set at the top, but it's collaborative. It's understanding what those are, how did we get there, what do we need to do in order to achieve those goals and meet those goals. Um, that's that's probably the approach that we take is just more collaborative than than most. Um, and then personally, I'll look at what what do I need to do, right? It's it's a team effort, um, but I need to pull my weight. And what can I do to achieve the larger goal? And how am I going to get there, right? Because it's whatever that number is set at as a team, and whatever that number is for me individually, it's not going to happen overnight. And if you think you're going to get it by just one sale or, or just, you know, be lucky, it's it's not going to happen. So you really need to break it down. Look at it. It's, there's 12 months in a year. Like just it, it sounds silly, but 
that's what you need to do is like, what do I need to do weekly, monthly in order to to get there? Is it you know, how many meetings do I need to get? How much FaceTime? How many proposals and term sheets need to be created? You know, it's it's a volume game. It's it's quality, but it, it's also volume, right? If you're not if you're not fishing enough, you're not going to catch enough fish. So um, that's that's me personally. But as I mentioned, collaboration is key. So we we work in tandem, you know, from a new sales and activation perspective, and we'll collaborate on accounts together, and we'll understand. Okay, you're having a problem. Like, what what can we do? You know, as a as a team, what, how can we collectively come up with a solution? I can see how that sort of approach creates comfort, focuses on the small tasks, keeps you moving forward, and they all add up to help you get to your goal. I like that approach. I know you also approach selling sponsorships with a solutions focus. While there is a whole system behind what is known as solutions selling, the premise being that the sponsorships you sell or anything that you sell are supposed to help a brand solve some of their marketing challenges, helping them achieve their goals. It completely makes sense. But in the early stages, how do you go about trying to make contact with a brand and ascertain if that brand actually has a need for your solutions and what you can do to help them? I mean, we could talk about process all day. I'll try to simplify it. You know, it starts with starts with doing your research. So understanding business values, target audience, and existing, let's say, you know, marketing initiatives that a brand would have going on. You need to identify who are those key decision makers, who's responsible, who's involved in the process. When it comes to outreach itself, reach out with purpose and add value. So it doesn't matter if it's brand managers, directors, CMOs. I mean, they they all get hit up daily by reps in various industries, not just sports. So why are they opening up your email? and or scheduling that exploratory call with you, right? What's, what is your value to it? Um, you know, you, you obviously have to follow up and build a relationship. So it doesn't stop after that first meeting. You can't just say, I've got the meeting and that's it. You've got to continue that momentum. And lastly, it's just being open to feedback. This, this should be true throughout the selling process, um, especially the solution selling process. So yes, we're, we're not going to be a fit for everyone. And, that's perfectly okay. Uh, what what we do need to do is is keep all those relationships warm, and then zero in on the ones where there's opportunity. How do you handle the no's in that situations? Particularly if you spend a lot of time trying to nurture and and understand a potential sponsor. I know I used to get super frustrated kick stones, maybe swear, get really angry. It's not fair. Once I had that out of my system, I was okay. How do you handle the no's? For more of the years, you hear a lot of no's. That's that's being in the industry. That's being in sales more broadly. But you've got to take away it's no right now. It's, it's not no forever, right? So that relationship, as I mentioned before, it's about keeping relationships warm, not the, you know, not just the yeses or the ones that are looking really promising, but the nose, you want to you want to keep them warm for the reason. Maybe it's next year's budget, or in two years' budget, or five years' budget, or maybe that contact moves over to another company. Like it's it's a no for now with that brand today. It's not a no forever. Jordan, you've got three alcohol brands in your sponsorship portfolio: Heineken, Magnus Irish Cider, and Jinro, which is a Japanese spirit distilled from grain. Is having no 
domestic alcohol brands actually a conscious decision? We also do have an RTD. So ready to drink spirit based can cocktail, a uh, day chaser. So that actually commenced this year. Um, it's made with real fruit juice and sparkling water. So for those that haven't tried it, check it out. Um, but as it relates to the broader domestic strategy, no, that, that just seems to be more of a coincidence than anything else uh, in, in being transparent. Um, we're actively exploring opportunities within the broader beer, wine, and spirits categories. So however, you know, while we're opening up and, and open to adding partners in those spaces, they do need to be the right fit. I think I mentioned that before, but they need to be the right fit for us and they need to be the right fit, let's say, for, for broader Red Bull. So while we have the opportunity, again, to fractionalize these categories, uh, most clubs, many clubs at least do, and properties manage to do effectively, we've just taken on more of a macro level approach, which is you know, positioning it where it makes sense as a broader portfolio play versus just singularizing you know, what is vodka, tequila, whiskey, gin, et cetera. Um, so it's, it's just part of our, you know, our strategy. Makes sense. What's been your favorite activation at New York Red Bulls? What was it? Why do you think it was so good? I think it's Audi. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Uh, as our, as our official luxury vehicle, the partnership just ticks so many boxes. Um, we've seen them activate an entitlement to one of our most premium spaces, club spaces. So it's called the Audi Club. Um, title night, in arena signage, digital social assets, community. So for every New York Red Bulls goal, um, Audi and the Red Bulls, we, we donate four trees to be planted locally in or around Newark, so for the community. But one of my favorite elements um, is really the opportunity for Audi to, to have their vehicle displayed in front of the VIP entrance at Red Bull Arena. So it's, a, it's great exposure. Um, and pre-match before the doors open, you can imagine the line, like they have their product specialists on site, engaging and interacting with fans. It's the perfect placement to reach the perfect demo. Speaking about planting trees, I wanted to ask about your community engagement and how that plays into your sponsorships. Because on your website, it says the New York Red Bulls are dedicated to giving back to the community in which we live and work. Through the involvement of Red Bulls players, coaches and staff, along with the support of our fans, we seek to make a positive impact in the community on and off the field. I'm curious about how much that narrative and that work plays into selling and activating sponsorships for you. 100%. Community is a key pillar, and it's really at the crux of what we do. And I'll give you a perfect example, um, which is our mini pitch program. So in, in you know totality, we believe that every child should have a safe place to play in their right you know own neighborhood. But we also know that like too many kids, especially those in underserved communities, just don't. So our mini pitches, they provide an innovative kind of turnkey solution for communities where just space is a premium. Um, these these small hard courts, their surfaces are perfectly suited for organized soccer and pickup play. So they're complete with with lighting and, and fencing and goals and benches. Um, it's 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 the perfect process. Uh, a few months ago, we actually opened our, I believe it was our 17th uh, soccer mini pitch for children in Newark public schools. So this wouldn't be possible without the support of our partners, which in this case, most recently, it was Kane University and the U.S. Soccer Federation. But all in, you know, this this just further, this is just an example of, you know, how we exemplify our mission, which is to develop, engage and inspire the soccer community. 
Are there any emerging areas of sponsorship or, or maybe trends that have caught your eye and that you think are, are potentially really going to provide an opportunity in the market soon? I don't know if it's, it's not necessarily new. There's probably a couple that, that might jump out that might be just relative um, data being the first, right? So, so data driven, you know, digital fan engagement, it, it, it's crucial. Um, it makes perfect sense, right? Because you have both right holders and sponsors that both want to aggregate as much data as possible. So without data, they, they can't measure brand engagement and evaluate key metrics, which, you know, that could be brand awareness, purchase intent, lead generation. So data, you know, it, it can target specific customer groups, both demographically and, and geographically. So all in these sponsors, they can reach their audience in a more effective way and more appropriately evaluated campaigns, whether it's it's return on investment or return on objectives. Um, we could also look at what is the Gen Z and, and really Gen Alpha. Um, these these generations, they're, they're vastly different than any generation be, before, right? Um, I think we, we, we've all um, interacted with them. Their habits, their traits, their preferences, it's only gonna continue to impact how sports and sponsorships are consumed. So if you think about it, I think it's by 2030, like this group will account for something along the lines of like 45% of the working population. So just doubling down on how they consume and operate and think, that's imperative. And, and, and simply put, it's, it's about being in touch with the latest tech and digital consumption. And that's also putting an emphasis on the consumer journey and just overall experience. The last one I would probably add is, is just looking at it as sustainability, environmentalism, and social responsibility. It's, it's prevalent today. It'll be even more prevalent tomorrow. So more and more sponsors, they're looking to align themselves with sports teams and organizations that, that prioritize sustainability, prioritize environmentalism, and social responsibility and mission alignment. So think of it as a, as a rights holder. It's, it's imperative that you at least reverse engineer this into your culture if it's not there already. And understanding what's important to you, your fans, and then going out and finding brands that share those, those similar values and where you can amplify what is a shared commitment on just a much larger scale. You make some very, very good points there, Jordan. I asked Deidre from Toyota the same question in the last show, but it seems really apt to ask you as well. Many people would look at a big brand like Red Bull for best practice leads and, and inspiration in the sponsorship space, and, and rightly so. But how do you yourself, working in an organization like that, try and stay up to date and be inspired by yourself on the sponsorship front? I can't say it enough. Sponsorship is a... It's a small industry. No matter where you are, what your you know what property you represent or tier you fall within, like it's a collaborative network. So continuing to create and expand and, and add value to these relationships, I've, I've said it before, relationships are key. This is integral. So I'm I'm always networking. Um, I'm an avid reader, so just staying staying up to date with sports business journal SBJ and, and subscribing to just any other sports business related newsletters in addition to what is, let's just say, broader advertising and media publications. That's easily part of my daily routine, especially, you know, first thing when I wake up in the morning. Um, I'd also layer on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn is, it's a go-to. Uh, I'm staying informed about my network and what's happening and who's doing what, who's moving where, 
uh, and continuing to find ways, I think this is also keys, find ways to add value and stay relevant. So for me, it's a lot of it comes back to just what's the value-based consumption and, and, and this kind of summarizes it. Jordan, it has been a great chat. If people want to get in touch with you, connect with you, or, or find out more about what New York Red Bulls is doing in the sponsorship space, what can they do? Where can they go? Best way to contact me, it's via LinkedIn. I'm always happy to connect, bounce off any ideas or answer any questions, right? Uh, always here. You can also email me at jordan.inuzi at newyorkredbulls.com. Jordan Ionuzzi, Senior Manager, Corporate Partnerships. Thank you so much for taking us inside New York Red Bulls in the MLS. Thanks, Daniel. Appreciate the opportunity. I love the balance of Jordan's professionalism, enthusiasm, and pragmatism in his role. And there were lots of the the normal-style insights into a role in an organization, but also lots of pieces of advice or ways of doing things that can be applied right now. Having a sales background myself, I always tried to take a solution selling approach just like Jordan. And I also love Jordan's take on the always be hunting approach, as well as how he handles those rejections. If you're keen to connect with Jordan, simply head to LinkedIn and search for Jordan Iannuzzi. That's I-A-N-N-U-Z-Z-I. And of course, you can follow New York Red Bulls by visiting newyorkredbulls.com finally if you'd like a shout out please keep them coming as it makes me happy or if you just want to connect and say hi i would totally love to hear from you i do get a real kick out of it so please make an effort connect with me on linkedin just search for daniel oyston that's o-y-s-t-o-n and that's a wrap for episode 120 until next time i'm daniel oyston thanks for listening to inside sponsorship Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, ebooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.